The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, friends. I'm your host, Chris Thrill. I'm a former Royal Marines commando. I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Marty, how are you, mate? Excellent, excellent, mate. I'm, I'm stuck at home homeschooling a 16, 13 and 8-year-old boy, like three boys at home. So, you know, how do you think I am, brother? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, um, this current uh, lockdown is putting it's putting people through their paces a bit. It, it tests out your skill set, huh? Yeah, it, it's funny, you know. It, um, I found myself, uh, particularly with the three boys, just uh, really needing to soften a bit. Um, as a as a male, like you know, like um, you know, you know, I'm, I'm pr- a pretty uh, big softy at the best of times, anyway. But just um, you know, the the normal rules just have to go out the window a bit, and you just have to be a little bit more, you know. So you want you know chicken goujons and uh, potato gems three nights in a row for dinner? Like if you guys are happy to cook them, that's absolutely fine. As long as you throw some veggies or salad in it with it or something like that, that's absolutely fine, mates. Parenting's funny, isn't it? Because I have a little boy, you know, I've come to it quite late, late, late in life, or certainly compared to my parents. And there was a book written by one of my colleague, former colleagues, Commando Dad. And it's a real line to tread. And your, your work on resilience really gets me thinking about when am I teaching my son the commando, you know, what we used to say, man up, let's say people up now, you know, <clears throat> this way, son, come on. And yeah. when am I just being an overbearing, insensitive bully that he's going to grow up to resent, you know, which is obviously yeah. none of us, um, none of us would want that. But uh, one little thing I've noticed, if I ask him to do something, but I don't do it with him, he gets really upset. Okay. So I have to come down off my kind of, you know, Marines bit and go, oh, okay, son, right. This is, and I'm, I, I'm just trying to do what I think is best, Marty. Have you found that? I mean, I've, I've got a, I've got, uh, my youngest boy has, uh, he was diagnosed with a bit of anxiety and OCD. Uh, and so this whole, um, you know, lockdown sort of thing, it's all very different uh, for him. And, and, it, and it really is, it, like, I really have found that the more, I turn into my dad when I'm when I'm trying to get him to do what, what I know he should be doing or whatever. The more he just explodes, and the more you know, just using those techniques, like wow, mate, you seem really upset. What's going on? Like you know, just the sort of stuff that comes really naturally to his mum. Uh, that I'm just having to learn that because it's just you know, you try to be a really effective parent to get you know to get the job done that needs to get done. And and if I do that, you know, the finger pointing is just. You know, he just turns into the Hulk and rips the shirt off and everything. So, it just, what? just in, in the interest of just 
getting the job done. You know, you got to learn new ways to do things. Why do we turn into our dad? So that's the thing. I've I've done everything in my life to be well to take my parents' good points, of course, but to leave all the crock of you know what behind. Mm. And yet, sometimes you listen to yourself and you just think, "Oh my God, I'm just I'm." That is exactly how my dad would have dealt with that situation, and I don't want to be that. You know, so that old metaphor, isn't it? That uh, you know, when uh, if you squeeze an orange, all that can come out is orange juice because that's what's inside. And so, you know, when we're squeezed, what comes, you know, what comes out is what's inside. And so, you just got to keep working on what's inside, so that when you're squeezed, what comes out is a little bit better than <laughs> than it was before. So, Marty, let's talk more about the kind of philosophy, psychology, resilience, life coaching type stuff um, in a moment. I think you're very fortunate as a professional and as a speaker, which you do so well. I've watched I've watched your TED talk, which was um, Thank you. incredibly confident on stage and you've got the funnies and all, all the, the, the stuff that speaking agencies look for. Um, and it's very good on your LinkedIn profile, which is how we met, because it says comedian of the year, <laughs> right? Which yeah, yeah. I'm that to me is so uh, impressive. It sounds like the wrong word. What I mean is, I completely appreciate what that means and what it takes to get that award. In in recent times, and the reason I started my podcast was because I liked the Joe Rogan podcast so much. And I liked the fact that he could just pick cool guests who he wanted. <laughs> and when I learned that he's a comedian and the way he talks about comedy, that you immediately realize, well, as a writer, my God, comedy, it's an art. It's so in-depth. There's, there's some people that are going to be naturally good at it and just need to polish yeah. their, their act. There's some people that are never going to be good at it. That's just, <laughs> you know, it's the same with writing. And there's people in the middle that can learn to get better. But overall, what a massive art form comedy is. What a brave thing to do. Um, well, I guess for me, mate, it was one of those things, um, you know, the people ask me, like, what's the, the biggest gift that being a comedian for 10, 11 years gave me? And it was... The ability to fail in public and not care <laughs> is, uh, is, uh, and, and, and I guess that the thing, I guess I was very lucky because uh, I, I had an older brother who was like better at sport than me and smarter than me. So I think so. My method for getting attention in the world, as, as every kid wants, was to be funny. And so I, I started practicing being funny at an age when I didn't care. You know, if I told a joke and it didn't work, I'd just try and think of another one. You know, like when you, eight, nine, 10, 11, you just don't care. You know, you just keep you know, until the family laughs at you. So all those sort of um, open mic nerves and, you know, saying jokes that completely die on your ass and that sort of stuff, it just, uh, I had all that training when I was young enough to not care. But then then when getting up, uh, doing it in front of the crowd, like I, uh, I sort of had a, a bit of a natural thing built into me that just like, you know, oh, your joke doesn't work. You just, you know, stand there and try another one. You know, like it, um, I sort of had that my <clears throat> really early on. I had it really smashed into me that you on stage isn't you as a person, and and so if you know it's like an artist who does a painting, 
if you put it up there, some people are going to like it, some people aren't, and that's okay. Like, you know, the worst thing you can do is try and do a painting that everybody likes because then it'll just be so bland, no one will like it. And so, yeah, I was very lucky early on to to just have that idea of, you know, just chuck it out there, you'll find your audience. And the same is true with, with speaking and podcasts and, and all those sort of things that is putting a little bit of your heart out there for people to look at. Um, just you'll find your audience. Just be open and honest and you will find your audience. It's, it's so true you say that and I'm, 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 I'm a lifelong learner. What some people would probably call me a slow learner, <laughs> me. Um, but I say that to, to my partner I, when I look at my YouTube channel, which has really been pivotal in changing a lot of my how I present my career and who I am and this and who I want to be with a public face. But I've said to to my partner, um, it's like you're trawling with a net. You're not going to get everybody. But you that but you don't want that because enough people will be caught in a net sounds really bad, but but for want of a better analogy, <laughs> yeah, you, know, yeah, you are gonna get those people that are attracted to you because they just like you. And mm. so if you keep doing it long enough and you're sincere and you have people's um best interests at heart, that yeah, you don't have to worry about the, the mudslingers, I suppose. And and it's true, you know, sometimes you know, I'm a, a speaker now, like in, in speaking, sometimes you'll get people book you just because they like you. They'll get you. They'll actually book you in spite of your topic, rather than because of it. You know, it's just like I just want my people to see him. He's good. I like him. You know, like and and you do like and and so you know and the people who you know over rehearse everything about their personality, whether it comes to you know sportsmen and women talking on you know post match interviews or people on TV or comedians or speakers or any anything where your personality gets exposed to the public where i think when people are overproduced and over rehearsed it, it uh you know you, you know i suppose they find their audience as well but i don't think it ever you ever get that really loyal audience that really loves you to bits yeah so did you grow up in australia or the uk because i know you spent time in both places you know I, I'm, I'm an aussie i grew up over here but then I was actually uh, following, I just started doing stand-up about a year earlier and I was following the Rugby World Cup around in 1999 uh, and I'm a big rugby fan and uh, and that was uh, back in the days when the Aussie dollar bought like 33 uh, pence, not, not you know, <laughs> a lot more like it does now. And so I did, I did, some, uh, I did some stand-up gigs over there just to help uh, pay for the trip. And it was one of those lovely scenes where an agent saw me and said, "Oh, look, I think you're great. You know, when can you move over here? I'll fill your diary." And I, I dragged my then English uh, girlfriend, now wife, you know, kicking and screaming. She'd just been sponsored as a nurse out here in Australia. Dragged mm. her kicking and screaming back to the UK with a promise that it would only be for two years. And we ended up staying for eight and got married and had our first child over there. Yeah, so I, I think I missed the, I think I missed the UK more than my wife does, to be honest. I think she loves living out here in Australia. But uh, I, I really miss just the changing of seasons and and uh, and uh, and just the sense of humour of, of the British people and the different you know different people in different parts different parts of Britain. Oh, my lights just fallen off. There you go. Brilliant. Live. There you go. <laughs> live live comedy, folks. <laughs> um. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, here we go. 
I um, yeah, I think I uh, I, I miss I miss Britain more than she does. I, she maintains that I just miss my self indulgent stand up comedian's lifestyle, but uh, I, I really miss uh, the country of Britain. Um, okay, and, uh, so yeah. it is true then that Britain, England, is a, a much better country than Australia. <laughs> Well, I mean, it, it's uh, like, again, like, you know, we were only saying the other day, my wife and I, we got, you know, three boys. I can't imagine the the coronavirus lockdown back in our, you know, three up, two down, semi, semi-detached semi house in Kingston-upon-Thames in outer London. You know, I just, I can't imagine going through it, <laughs> through it there, you know. I'm excited to get that, you know, sad, that seasonally adjusted, this mm. sort of thing in February every year. Let alone if we're locked inside with three ridiculously energetic kids, like mm-hmm. two of whom would have had to have been sharing a room and everything. Just would have thought, oh my god, I, I can't imagine it now. So here's the thing: I don't want to say any names here because that that's not fair. But I do see some comedians, and they take it really seriously. They take themselves in in the comedy role very seriously. But here's the thing. And I don't think it's like a preference thing. I just think, mate, you're not funny. You, it, you, you just haven't got it. It's nothing. It's not been. It's not a criticism of your effort. Nothing like that. It's just, I'm a great, not a great believer, but I think some people are funny and some people aren't. And, and it's, it's one of those things. I, I used to say there'd be so many backstage conversations on the comedy circuit about. What's the right sort of funny? You know, like who does the right type of comedy and that sort of thing. And there's, you know, comedians, comedians, and there's, you know, and I think I used to always say, you know, like on a on a bill, if there's five people on a bill, whoever made the crowd laugh the most tonight, they were the best comedian tonight, and that's it. There's, there's, it's, it's not like music is a matter of taste, or you know, being a chef, cooking is a matter of taste, something like that. But um, you know, in, in a comedy club, there's no hiding. Like someone made the crowd laugh tonight. The most, and they were the best comedian on the night, and and, um, and so, you know, I, I, again, you know, coming back to I guess what we were saying before that, you know, some people uh, find their audience, and it's a really small audience because of you know the type of comedy they do, and they've got to be okay with that, or change the type of comedy you do, <laughs> like you know, like or that there's just no arguing that not enough not a big enough percentage of the population finds you funny. Either okay. change your style, change your act, or get better at it so that more people do find you funny, or just you know give it up. <laughs> well, it's, it remind me there a bit of what Doug Stanhope says. He he says you know I pick my audience mainly a drunken one that he said because they come and see me. He said I don't yeah. do impromptu because if you put me in front of a bunch of strangers, they're just going to think I'm a real asshole. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 and, and he's he's one of those guys who's like a commit, like everyone from you know uh, Bill Hicks to a guy, strong Aussie guy called Brendan Burns in Australia who won the the, the Perrier about you know ten years ago. Like they real comedians, comedians and comedians absolutely love you know the, the stuff they do, but they, they they don't get as wide an audience um, because they're just brutally truthful and incredibly vulgar and incredibly rude, and you know, and that's their style, and and. And that's, you know, it comes from inside their heart and they just got to accept their place in, in the, whereas, you know, your Michael McIntyre's and that sort of stuff, very GP, general public, um, you know, um, they're always going to do better because they never offend anyone. And so yeah. It's just, you know. 
I know which one I prefer. I, um, um, you know, <laughs> almost, I can't, I don't want to come out of any of his material because I probably will offend people. There is a problem in society. I, I always say to people, I've got to tell my truth because if I don't, I'm denying somebody out there who maybe like me in their life has struggled with, with issues, drugs, mental health, whatever it is. And like, if I hold back because I'm worried about what these 10 people, you know, these drop in the ocean people might think, then I'm, I'm, a, I'm being a coward to you. And I don't mm. want to be, you know, I don't want it on my gravestone. Coward. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else, just yeah. not coward. And it's, but it is really becoming an issue, isn't it? Especially in comedy. You know, you, you, you can't just, and don't, didn't they say, you know when you're in totalitarianism because no one will be able to laugh. They'll take the comedy away. And that's what's yeah, happening. Yeah, I, I guess I can um I can see uh I can see both sides of the argument. I'm gonna um uh prevaricate and, and flip flop a little bit in terms of um uh you know, comedy in the nineteen eighties, for example, uh, you know, it was like, you know, parts of it were incredibly funny and everything, but there's a, there's a, an expression in comedy called punching down, where um, you know that uh, people who who are in a lesser socioeconomic group than you, you know, it's just beneath you to to make fun of them. Whereas yeah. there's, there's lots of stuff, there's lots of stuff you can make fun of. Um, yeah. And so the thing I say to comedians when they ask me is, um, just remember the saying: if you ain't one of them, don't make fun of them, because um, yeah. it's just just, you just don't have to. You know, like there's yeah, lots, well, of ways, that's, lots of ways that you can be funny. It's like I did my degree is in youth work, so I'm passionate about young people, community, you know, what people might term equal rights, that kind of thing. And obviously being a former druggie, I'm from a minority myself, right, you know, a, a abused minority. And when I hear this, uh, my point is, when you go to, through the, the course they did in uni, you do a lot on anti-discrimination, right? Mm -hmm. And the trouble is now, it's you can see where anti-discrimination is getting confused for political correctness, and they're two completely, almost completely separate things, you know. Yeah. And I just, you know, I, I would say, like you know, like the you know, if you ain't like you can make jokes about um, being a druggie. Like I'm losing my hair. I can make drug. I can make drugs about ball buggers, or um, you know, and you know, and um, people who aren't, you know, then like you know, sure, you know, you can, but um, just be open to the fact that there's going to be people that you annoy, and if you're okay with that, then you know, go ahead and do it and accept the consequences. But um, you know, there's there's so much stuff you can laugh at. You know, the world is funny enough without it's just, you having um, to. Like my. My philosophy is simple: is just don't say anything that's going to make somebody else's life or their community harder for them. It's, it's, it's you know we can you can make fun of a lot of stuff about a lot of people. It doesn't mean when they wake up in the morning their life's going to be harder because of what you said. But um, yeah. So is it frightening? That I mean, public speaking they say is people's biggest fear even more so than death but to yeah. get up and then have to make people laugh how, how was that your first few times 
I mean, I, I, I was like always the, uh, you know, the kid who got up at school assembly and made fun of the principal or, you know, did like 18th birthday speeches and 21st birthday speeches, volunteered for debating at school. It's something I've just always really, really enjoyed. I, I have, you know, many, many memories as a kid of, you know, just sitting down watching Monty Python and the goodies and, and, and comedy shows with my family together. Like it was just a real, one of those things that my family really loved, laughed, everything, you know, two Ronnies, two um, Morecambe and Wise, and like all, all like, you know, I was a tiny, tiny kid when all these things were on, even the repeats. But just that idea of um, just that magic of a whole room laughing together at the same thing, just that uniting wonderful force that it is. Um, and so once I learned that I had a bit of a talent for doing that, um, it was something, you know, I just had to explore uh, because the feeling when it goes well is worth 15, 20 times when it doesn't. <laughs> it really is. It's it's so much fun um, being the person who made everyone feel that way. is just uh, it's such a wonderful moment. I absolutely love it. Oh, that's yeah. No, it's it's nice to hear you say that. What um, I mean. Alcohol and drugs is synonymous, isn't it, with stand-up comedy, at, at, at least on that sort of L.A. LA scene. Yeah. And a lot of, you know, we've lost a lot of uh, beloved comedians to drugs and out, al- you know, alcohol overdoses. Um, was was that ever an issue for, for well, you? Yeah, I've, I've, seen, I've, I've seen drugs. I mean, I've never, um, never really... Uh, I think um, coming up, see, I was a pharmacist. Uh, I, I grew up, I'm a third-generation pharmacist by training. And so um, I guess I, I knew too much about it to, to really get, get into it too much, I think. Um, but certainly, um, uh, you know, I've, I've tried most things over the years, but, but um, it's more, um, you know, and, and saw loads of it. I think it's more, like, people ask me, like, what are comedians like? And it's like just asking what are people like? You know, if, if you got... A thousand comedians on the comedy scene in London. There'll be a few people who, um, you know, get in and, and try some drugs. There'll be, you know, most who don't. There'll be. You know, it would probably be quite similar to the regular population, except that it's much more available um, on the com- on the comedy scene just because it's showbiz. You know, so you know, people get offered that sort of stuff uh, all the time. It's so funny. I wouldn't, wouldn't, I wouldn't sort of say it's. Um, um, or maybe they just didn't do it in front of me. I don't know because I knew I was a bit of a straighty one eighty. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But um, I, I didn't. Um, it wasn't as rock and roll as uh, as uh, as people might suspect. I think. It, um, I was going to say there that I, m- I remember someone talking about they smoked a joint before going on stage, and it kind of sent them into a, a panic attack. And yeah, uh, I, I, I just. That. I couldn't think of anything. I mean, it works for some people, doesn't it? I think Joe Rogan is one of those people it seems to work for. For me, I think I'd just stand there and freeze. What I was saying, to me, it wouldn't sound funny to myself. And I think that's... um, I mean, I I would quite regularly have one, two or three beers before going on stage in in a comedy club. Um, it was actually one of the hardest things <laughs> I discovered when I started doing speaking as opposed to doing stand-up comedy that, you know, you're on at 10 o'clock in the morning and like you can't have one or two beers to get your 
get your Dutch courage up before you go on stage. You've just got to, you've got to, like, hey, there's no green room, so you can't be backstage, you know, sort of dancing around trying, trying to get yourself ready because you're just next to the stage about to go on and, and you can't have one or two beers to get your confidence up either. So those first couple of years, it just felt a little bit, a uh, little bit jarring. But, um, you yeah, know, I, I was definitely, um, probably, if I'm honest, it would be, Seven, eight nights out of ten, I would have a couple of beers before going on stage just to get the uh, confidence up. I guess because comedy is quite a um, those first two minutes can be quite uh, gladiatorial in nature when you when you first get out there. Particularly, you know, like I was I was an Aussie stand up comic around the time Australia lost the Ashes for the first time in seventeen years and lost the Rugby World Cup and all that to the English. <laughs> and so it uh, you know there was uh, quite a few moments there where. Uh, you know, it was a fair, a fair bit of uh, gladiatorial contest in the first two and a half minutes I was on stage. There's something you notice. I think there's something else that goes hand in hand with comedy is when people are very relaxed and they, you can tell they're quite sure about, or at least they give the impression they're quite sure about themselves, isn't it? Yeah. They, it's almost like they're just coming out to talk to you and, it, and it's not they're coming out to present you with an act an act and they really hope you're going to like it you know bill hicks i mean he just didn't really he'd, he'd send people out of his audience wouldn't he yeah i mean and that, and that comes from uh stage time you know just you know when you've done it 500 a thousand times sort of thing it um and, and you have you know the the a bank of really strong material like i interviewed a guy called uh i'll just chat when i first started i um I just contacted about 15, 20 comedians that I knew were like 10 years ahead of me and just bought them, you know, lunch or a coffee or a, a slice of baklava or whatever they wanted just to have a chat. And um, a guy called Pete Berner here in Australia, who's a pretty big comedian here in Australia, he, he said um, the best place to get to is um, when you've got a bank of material about a particular subject, um, like he uh, he experimented with a lot of drugs. He had a lot of drug material. And so he said, I'll just start talking about drugs. And if nothing funny comes out after 30, 45 seconds, I'll do a couple of lines that I know are really good and I'll get the audience back. And then I'll just start talking again. And he would actually get to the point where he was confident enough to write new material on stage just by talking. And and uh, after a while, like that's a you know really lovely place to get to, which was probably only in the last couple of years of my comedy career that I got to that point where I was just willing to just chat to the audience and see what came out, you know. Marty, whereabouts are you? Where are you, where where are you from in Australia, and where do you live now down there? I'm originally uh, from a town called Newcastle, which is about two hours north of Sydney. I and know I'm it. Now, yeah, yeah, and I and I um and I'm now uh, live in a place called Noosa, which is about two hours north of Brisbane. You know, about you know, about halfway up on the le- on the right hand side as you look at Australia. I know it's the easiest way to describe it. Is that it? It's Queensland is the tropics, right? Where the yeah, Are you just, well, I mean, you know, Queensland, Queensland. I'm about uh, sort of three hours over the border into Queensland, but there's still about another 22 hours to go to the top of Queensland. Like, like you know, it's a, it's a like my um, my my wife's mum uh, texted us when the because we had some bushfires here, the terrible bushfires in over the summer here, and there's some really bad ones about 500 meters that way, uh, and then. Uh, the really, really bad, massive bad ones happened in January over here. And my wife's mum texted us and said, like, oh, look, I saw there's more bushfires. Are they near you? 
I said, oh, look, you know, um, you know, Rosemary, uh, Australia's a pretty big place. It's like me texting you and saying, I saw there were some bushfires in Crete. Are you okay? <laughs> like, hey, yeah. They really were that far away. Gosh. <laughs> so, yeah, I bought a surfboard in Newcastle, just, just so you know. Oh, nice. <laughs> Very good. To start off my surfing uh, career, I know career is not the right word, but my hobby, and uh, oh, I loved it. I loved just being able to go in the water, and it's, it actually wasn't too warm around Sydney, but the hot when you get up to to where you are, just yeah, yeah. becomes um, just a real pleasant thing to go surfing as as often as you know, I was. I was I bought a hired I hired a car in Sydney, and I just worked my way up to. I think Ellie Beach, and I had, had yeah, the te yeah. tent in the back of the car, and I was just pitching the tent as and when, and, and surfing every time I wanted to. It was a really great experience. Can we, Marty? Can we talk about your TED talk, your t TEDx sure. talk, because yes. that's quite a, an achievement. Um, okay. and I gather they they're quite not strict, but they have a kind of set format. That they and they give you a lot of support. To, to, yeah, to... no, it is a rule, I guess, because they, um, you know, they they apply to, for a license, like a TEDx event applies for a license from TED, and there's, there's some quite strict rules about, uh, you know, how much you can um, tickets. Or I think tickets, um, I think tickets have to be free. I think tickets have to be free on the day, and a certain number of tickets, and you know, and they, yeah, and they have to. You know, lead speakers through a process to make sure that the quality on the day is so. But it's, it's such a. If anyone gets gets a chance or gets 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 asked to go to a TEDx event or be part of a TEDx event, because I, I was very lucky, I was on sort of I think second or third on the day. So I just sat in the audience and watched all the other speakers and the amazing variety of ideas in the the twelve or thirteen speakers that were there on the day was just. Uh, an absolute pleasure to watch, let alone you know be a, be a part of the event on the day. Everything from um, two examples I really remember were there was this one lady who they were they're trying to find a cure for malaria, and so you, you when when you're at school you would do um, you know experiments in the chemistry class and you'd get your chemicals and then at the end of it the teacher would dispose of them properly and it was like the same stuff they did last year and everything. In uh, they've got this program where. They're getting kids to um, create chemicals that can be used potentially to fight malaria, just rather than do it in laboratories and create all different ones. And they send them off to a lab that tests whether they work um, against malaria. So, like, you're actually creating a chemical that's going to be used in a trial. Um, and so it's so much more fascinating for kids. And, and you can go on the website and track which chemical you're meant to be creating using today's experiment, that sort of stuff, which is which is a really cool thing. And um, the other really cool idea on the day was like English is one of the hardest languages to learn. Um, and so like in Denmark, by the age of two, two and a half, kids are reading to learn, whereas in, in English, like even age five, kids are still learning to read. And so this guy was proposing this new alphabet so that just like most other languages in the world, if you see the letter C with this squiggle over it, it's always a hard C, like a K. Where if you see a C without that little squiggle over it, it's always a soft C like a C. And so, you know, by the age of two and a half, use this special alphabet till kids can learn, um, you know, when they get older, how English really works. Wow, and so he's, yeah. in, he's, he's invented this um, new, um, you know, like Germans have umlauts and, and, all, and uh, accents in French and all that sort of stuff. 
and it just makes it so much easier for kids to learn to say that word out loud and in their head as soon as they see it. And so they can they can be reading to learn by the time they hit school. Just so fascinating. Like just so just sitting back watching all these ideas was absolutely fascinating. It's a lovely uh, process to be part of. Yeah, I'd like to do. Um, you know, I'd like to do a, a TEDx. I try to pitch myself to to the one week the the nearest one to me, and and they ask for a subject heading, don't they? Something that's going to kind of challenge accepted ways of thinking yeah and so mine was something like how addiction set me free you know I, I, I wanted to break this stereotypical thinking that addiction has to be like a bad thing we need you know we need to avoid at all costs where probably like i'm sure yourself my it's just another one of life's rich experiences and it, it's yeah, up yeah. to you to to make of it you know, up, it's what you make of it, sort of thing. But uh, not surprised in my professional career. I didn't hear anything back from them. I wouldn't well, mind. I, 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 I keep trying. I, I keep trying. I, I'd, um, you know, uh, you know, work on your piece. Like it's a great um, one of the keys that I, people ask me how to get a TED talk. It is like come up with a real counterintuitive title like that. Like my, mine was um, why we should all take funny seriously was the, yeah. the title of my yeah. my keynote. And so, you know, yours um, follows a similar sort of structure, you know, how um, uh, how addiction can set you free or how addiction set you free. And I, I just maybe, um, uh, you know, I, I um, have, have a have a work on the, um, on the you know, my three key takeaways and that sort of stuff and keep refining it and keep pitching it uh, to other ones uh, around the countryside. Like, it, um, of course, um, they're all very separate, independent events and just quietly, they almost never talk to each other. <laughs> And so, and so I just, um, keep refining it and keep trying it, you know, um, and then, you know, after a year, um, be thinking of a second one that you could, um, do and st go back and go through the process and pitch it to all the people, all the, uh, the different ones again. Mm. But, um, like don't, don't, uh, don't settle for that first no. Like, you know, keep trying because, um, it's a really fun thing to be part of. Did you have to rehearse yours many times? Are you allowed? To, are you looking at a screen to see your notes, or is it just? Yeah, yeah. No, they. Um, I mean, I'm, I, um, the it was sort of one of those things for me um, that because uh, yeah, I'm I sort of speak well not at the moment obviously, <laughs> but I, I speak sort of you know seventy five eighty eighty five times a year sort of thing. So I'm I'm used to being up on the feet. But I was doing because uh, it was only fourteen minutes long. I was doing like this chunk followed by this chunk followed by this chunk, not. This chunk, then all this, all this stuff, then this chunk later, then all this stuff, and then, so I was like combining bits into stuff as I I didn't normally do them before. So, um, but I had, uh, yeah, there was like a, I could see like the slides that were behind me, I could see those on a fallback screen here, and then over here, just in case I needed them, like for all the speakers, there was a, you know, like their set list, or you know, like a band has a set list or something like that, yeah. so they could remember, they could remember the points. Yeah, it's, I think it, it's in their interest to make sure you do really well. Uh, so yeah, they're, they're very supportive, and they—I had it. There was a, a coach um, who coached everybody, and you know, I was like, "Oh, I've been doing this for 16, 17 years." But th this lady was absolutely fantastic, and she, you know, really taught, you know, blew up what I had and helped me put it back together, and then and, and then let me feel like it was totally my idea to do it that way. And <laughs> she was just really, really good, really, really. I've actually recommended her to a few speakers um, after that, just because she's just a really great speaking coach, and she just. Um, 
volunteered her time to get into the TEDx spirit and everything. Yeah, it was a really wonderful process. The whole speaking thing is um, fascinating. I mean, being in the military, when you're in the Marines, you have to do public speaking by definition of you have to be able to give a lecture. It's done in a very set way. Then I went on to do a little bit in business. And so I was talking to audiences and it's that sort of bit of a cliche. But, you know, once you've done one or two, it just becomes so much more natural and, and easier. But this kind of what they're starting to call into in, inspirational speaking or motivational speaking or live coaching, which it seems crossovers of, of, of several areas. Um, I'm just getting into that now. In fact, all, I think all my gigs are going to be cancelled because uh, of this lockdown. Right? So yeah, yeah. it's not the, not been the best of starts. Yeah, I've but, got nothing now, nothing confirmed until about August or October. And even that's, you know, they're all sort of paused or on hold or that sort of stuff. Now, I'm doing a fair bit of virtual stuff, like doing a few, um, just like we are now, um, doing this sort of thing. Because there's a lot of, um, there's actually a lot of, like, so, you know, don't be afraid to reach out to your clients um, but who, who, and say, you know, are you doing any virtual stuff? I've got a podcast, like I'm totally set up to do um, this sort of thing. I could, you know, you sort of have to make it, because um, I run this thing called the Speaker Business Accelerator and, and we sort of teach people how to run their speaker business and we're saying like that you need to, like you can't just do your big show, you know, showy keynote in front of a camera. Like you have to make it more more of a discussion, more of a workshop sort of thing and more a yeah. little bit more nuts and bolts, explore the nuts and bolts of what you're talking about rather than just, um, you know, a bit more showy jazz hands and stories and all that sort of stuff when you're on a stage with a thousand people it's very different to you know because it feels that every person who's watching on a on a webinar or a zoom call it feels like just like the conversation we're having now but you're having it with 50 people i've got one on thursday that's going to be to 350 people and so you've got to sort of maintain that energy that we've got now like they like they say on the radio where you talk to the listener on the radio where you like you pretend there's only one person there so you, mm. you're talking that way but um, uh, yeah, yeah. So sorry, you 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 um you're talking about um you're just no started no it's your it's, it. it's your chat, Marty. I'm just I'm kind of taken. Uh, the money surprised me. I mean, it's bloody hell. They pay you well, don't they? They do. Even yeah, the, when I came when I came back from doing stand up in the UK, a, a really good friend of mine, uh, Arndo, he's like quite a famous comedian here in Australia. And, uh, and he took me aside about two months after that. He said, Marty, don't call it stand up comedy. Call it corporate keynote speaking. It pays a hell of a lot better. And it really does. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for our listeners at home or our watchers on YouTube, it's it, it, literally in, in four, four hours work, I make more money than I ha have ever done writing books yeah. for the year on four hours work earns me more money than I've ever earned in a previous year. It's, um, it's, it, yeah. But then again, I guess with that becomes the responsibility of making sure the audience goes away, having learned something and, and to a, to a degree, having been entertained for that hour. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, that's, that, that's the real key to it. That, 
you can drop two or three uh, while you are while you're making them enjoy themselves for 45 minutes, 50 minutes. You can drop two or three truth bombs in a um, that pithy earwormy type of way that, um, that you know they'll come up to you in a cafe three years later and so like, like one of my like I talk about resilience through times of change and one of the things I one of the ways I describe when you when you refuse to change you don't hold on to the past you just lose the future and so that's one of sort of the key things that I talk about and so crafting your points into those little memorable phrases that um, people really hang on to and just, you can just see their eyes just going yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah, you got me there, got me there. Like that just, it's really worth the effort to, I mean, any presentation, anyone who's watching this who makes any sort of presentation, whatever your two or three uh, key points are that you want to land, make sure you express them in a really um, succinct and memorable and pithy type of way um, so that um, people go away. So, yeah, when they fill out the feedback sheets and that sort of stuff, they're like, yeah, this bit was really good, that bit was really good. Can I, am I allowed to get it tattooed on their arm? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. That's a really, um, they call it a segue, don't they, in comedy? I'm, I'm learning from Joe, Joe Rogan. Is it, that's a good segue into um, talking about resilience. Um, I know in your TED Talk you talked about your, your partner's story. Um, yep. Is that how, was that how you first, well, obviously resilience is something that, it's a theme that runs through us all our lives, isn't it? Whether or not we recognize it or, or, or how we shape, shape that resilience. When, when did it become a feature in your, in your sort of speaking and, and you, you've written a series of books as well? Yeah, well, I mean, it really was. Um, so, uh, to, to recap for those who haven't uh, seen my TED talk, it's, um, I talk about in, in my take funny seriously TED talk, I, I, I talk about, how humour can build resilience. And, and it came from um, my wife had crippling postnatal depression after all three of our boys to the point where about eight or nine months after the birth of our third child, I came home from work one day and Ali just burst into tears over the dinner table and very quietly just slid across the table to me the goodbye letters that she'd written to myself and all three of our boys individually. And, and it was one of those things where... Um, if ever I become egotistical enough to write an autobiography, it's going to open with the sentence, unfortunately, I had a very privileged upbringing, upbringing because like, I, I had like a really lovely childhood. Like um, My dad was a pharmacist, so he had a really stable income even through you know, uh, the 80s and 90s, which you know, had um, recessions and everything. And so I didn't really have any difficulties that I couldn't work out until I was about 30, you know, um, and, and so when my wife had, you know, this horrible time, um, I was just absolutely left floundering. And, and so it was uh, the partly the idea, because in the TED Talk I talk about how eventually, after lots of tears and, you know, a couple of weeks of discussions, I said, well, how can I help or how can I at least not make it worse? And she and my wife sat there for a while and she said, you know, we don't laugh anymore. You know, like we used to go along to live comedy when I was doing stand-up and we deliberately take time to watch comedy. And so we we deliberately chose to seek out those shows that made us laugh. And, and that, you know, I'm not saying that was better than, you know, she'd been on medication on and off for, for years. and uh, She has been on medication on and off for years. And meditation, um, 
light exercise, all these things, but it was actually just a lot of laughter every night that lifted the clouds just that little bit enough um, for her to have the energy to do those things. And it added a layer of um, sunshine to those things that made them just that little bit easier. And uh, and so it was that um, combined with, as you say, I've, I've got this book series called What I Wish I Knew, where I ask people if you could go back and give your younger self one bit of advice about whatever that one's about. So there's one on like health and fitness, there's one on depression, there's one on cancer, there's one on marriage, there's one on uh, love, all sorts of things. And when you interview over a thousand people and ask them if you could go back and give your younger self one bit of advice, um, everyone sort of says, the key to doing life well is this idea that I talk about in my keynotes is do pain well. Like if you can handle those times in your life when you're dumped in the deep end and your previous life experience, like, like me, like, you know, hadn't prepared me for who I needed to be and, and how I needed to move forward. If you can handle those times well, the good times kind of look after themselves. Um, and so that's what everybody says when you interview people about life. And so it's like, handling those crucial moments of, de of decision. And so one of the things I talk about in my keynote is the fact that you need to build resilience before you need it. You know, you need to, like that old uh, Chinese proverb, of you need to dig the well before you're thirsty. You know, you need to um, prepare for these things uh, you know, because there's a lot of people finding out now, um, right now when this lockdown is on, that, all these things, you know, the retail therapy and all these things they thought um, were, you know, helping them cope with life's difficulties actually weren't really doing them much good at all. <laughs> you know, like, mm. um, when, the, when those things were taken away, they're starting to realise that it's actually the in here and the in here is what you really need to work on for those really tough times that we all have, we all have as part of life. Do we need to define resilience, Marty, for our audience or does everybody know what 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 that is these days? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of different um, there's lots of different uh, uh, definitions. I went, the way I define it in my keynote is it's your um, your ability to keep your peace of mind through stressful times. Like you know how much you can you know keep that little half smile on your face through the really crappy days. And and you know psychological research has shown that. Um, you know, your, your ability to be able to maintain your peace of mind through stressful times, about 50% genetic, so blame your mum and dad, about 10% events, so 10% what happens to you, and about 40% how you think about, how you process events, how you think about what happens to you. And the great, the great news is um, that there are things that everybody can learn to improve that 40%. So, you know, 50% um, of it's, you know, you know, we all have this basic uh, happiness set point that we sort of bound back. That's why, you know, people win the lottery and, you know, a year later, even like half of them lose the money, but half of those that haven't, we're only about 5% happier than they were before. Like once we have our basic needs taken care of, money really doesn't do that much. No. And so it's, um, it's your genes, 50% your genes, only about 10% what happens to you, contrary to, you know, advertising and social media telling you that it's all about living the dream life. Mm. Um, but it's 40% 40, 40 that you can actually work on to make yourself happier and improve your – It's the the Buddhist term for it is Maitri. Like it's – um, it, it, that's why about, you know, 10 years ago it was all about happiness. But what they were actually talking about was the Buddhist term Maitri, which is sort of like a combination of happiness and peace of mind and calm all blended in together 
and that's uh, that's what I talk about with resilience: your ability to tame that through really stressful times. Yeah, well, it's an important thing to remember, isn't it? That you're always going to face challenges in your life because life, uh, you know, can be challenging. It's probably challenging when saber-toothed tigers were running at us when we lived in caves. Is but when you develop this kind of Zen way of being, it makes it, it it's how you deal. It's like the arcade game where they're rolling the, is it Super Mario, where they're rolling the balls down at you and, you know, you yeah. just. Oh, the Donkey Kong. Donkey Kong. Is it Donkey Kong? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I also think it's yeah. worth um, mentioning that it's not just one resilience. There's, it's developing your resilience in different, for different scenarios. Would you agree with that, Marty? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, for example, I'm very tough in many areas, you know, physical, bring it on. I, I, in 2018, I ran um, 999 miles pretty much nonstop, um, what, what, whatever, you know. And to be honest, it's not as hard as it sounds. It's just that my head's in the right place, you know. Um, I eat anything and everything and I always have done because I made a decision when I was a very young child. I didn't want to be fussy and I wanted to take in as much of this life as I could. And I've always been that way. Um, so I'm, and obviously I had quite a, a tough childhood and there it was many times it was just me and a cigarette being, being tough. You know, that, that was it, right? But. I'll be the first to hold my hand up and say some situations I've been really rubbish in and I'm, I'm getting better because I never stop my learning because I'm massively finding most of my answers in kind of spirit, spiritual, um, you know, in, in, in this, in spiritual practices, you can say, which ironically, very often not thinking too hard and not trying to learn to it, it the answer's like right in front of you right yeah. so i love the i love the winston quote churchill quote um almost every crisis can be solved in 20 minutes <laughs> yes yes um i mean I, I don't want to waffle on i could give loads of examples but but well, when, that's interesting I, that you say where, where do where do you say you've struggled like what um for someone who's done you know some amazing uh, challenges and, and got over some, you know, some incredible internal um, turmoil. Where where have you struggled? It's interesting you say that. Um, you know, I mean, you can say take the. We were talking about parenthood earlier. You know, being resilient means being able to be strict and tough, but on yourself in those times when you're interacting with other people, like so when it's that temptation to shout at your son and go, Oi, you, you don't do it like that. Just, just, just do it like, and, and like I say, you're being your dad, right? It's, that is uh, something I work on all the time. I think because I'm ex-military as well, it doesn't help it that we just do things. And it, it's like there's us and there's idiots. Um, and, you know, I, I recognize that I need to work on that. Uh, because I've, for the 
biggest reason in the world, my gorgeous little boy, you know? Um, so yeah, so kind of, these are all different areas of resilience, aren't they? Or different, the kind of different facets of it. Am, am I right or am I kind of misunderstanding something? Yeah, no, it's, um, I guess, you know, we're all, um, challenged by different things, you know, different areas of life. Uh, and it's possibly to do, I, I think, with, you know, our, um, our upbringing and, uh, challenges. You know, we have a bank of experience where we have, you know, built up our resilience muscles in various types of interactions, types of human situations. And, and I think sometimes when we haven't been through that situation before, what, you know, what held us in good stead in this sort of situation is just not going to work in this sort of situation. And sometimes we're totally floored by that and, and we have to, uh, and have to pick ourselves up. So yeah, I, I think I know exactly what you mean. I think the, the phrase that I come back to again and again and again is there's this, uh, Buddhist guy called Timber Hawkeye out of the States. And he, he says that, um, I, I think I mentioned in my, in my TED talk, the, um, you cannot calm the storm. So stop trying. What you can do is calm yourself. The storm will pass. And, and, it, uh, and it is all about just that inner game that we all uh, have to play, you know. And it's a lot of emphasis is placed on this intergenerational thing of young people these days are, are being mollycoddled um, and being protected from from risk, which in itself then depletes your body's natural ability to be able to cope with with risk and and, um, and be resilient it's it's interesting but i would just take it back a generation and say most adults are pretty bloody rubbish as well <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I don't buy into this whole um intergenerate i mean you know i remember um, my dad telling me that when he went to uh pompeii um, you know, down in Italy, they, they found there was graffiti up on the wall there about how lazy young people were these days and, and, all, and all that sort of thing, you know, like back in Roman days, you know, like I, I think, um, uh, and there was, a, I think it was um, Cicero or, or someone back then talked about how, you know, young people these days, they can't hold a decent conversation. Everybody's writing a book and, you know, they wear their togas above their knees or something like that. It was the thing, you know. You know, like where it was the fashion, to, where it was the fashion to wear it below the knees, or you know, or something like that. You know, and and it's just um, you, you're like you know, it's it's a lot, a lot of it's the boomers, you know, having a go at this generation. But you think about you know their parents, and they were like 60s and 70s flower children, and now they're having a go about how you know the youngsters just don't know how they, how good they've got it, and you know, like the the boomers, like they lived their whole teenage and 20s through a year, you know, post uh, post World War Two, where there was you know. Um, make love, not war, and all that sort of stuff, and letting your hair grow long, and you know, rebelling against everything that had come before. And so, I, I think it's just sort of a, a natural thing that um, you know, every generation, uh, you know, thinks the teen teenagers are complete idiots. <laughs> I, I, w I wonder if that's the, just the same for society, though. I mean, I'll give you some examples of my pet peeves. Not that I try to focus on them because I want all, I just try to have all negativity out of my life if I can control that. But I'm, it still amazes me when adults text you 
especially when it's a text that that's clearly taken them about 15 minutes to write <laughs> because to me texting is it's it's young it's it's that damned modern technology that bloody pick up the phone like like a human being speak to you uh, but uh, uh, or, or other things when people will just walk into a room look down at the floor take a seat and it's like you're kind of hi you know you knew you know we're going to be on a course now for like three weeks we're going to get it so why don't you just like say hello now because i'm going to be with you rather than go through this weird shyness ritual of coming in looking at the floor hoping no one's gonna burst your shyness bubble because we all feel shy it's just a human thing and it's all little things like this adults have lost the ability to come up and go hi my name's chris how are you doing it's just simple things i heard you in your talk with that uh, wonderful um julie is it cross julie cross yeah. yeah and she said you were talking about how when you look at the old wedding photos of old, old the older generation australians how they looked fitter healthier how they had more resilience because back then it wasn't really an option you you know you had to be resilient and i, I bet they came up to each other and went g'day mate how you do um yeah am i <laughs> am i just been a bitter old man or is that no, but you know, I think every generation has has things about it. You know, it, um, you know, there's well, you know, that is true. Um, I, I absolutely agree that that is true. But you know, back, you know, also, you know, back then there was a lot of intolerance for you know a lot more open acceptance of vocal intolerance for people who couldn't play that game because of what was going on inside them. You know, for, through reasons of you know, uh, belief, religion, sexuality, like all those um, uh, sort of things, you know. And um, and so, you know, that 10% who couldn't fit into that, g'day, mate, how are you? Look me in the eyes and shake my hand. You know, uh, they were uh, quite probably absolutely crushed more by society than, than they are today. So like, I, I, can, I, I can see both sides of the story. I think I probably need to rescue myself a bit here. No, I, I, I get that. It's like when people say, you know, if you can't look me in the eye, you, 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 it's like, no, there's lots of people who don't feel comfortable and it, the handshake, I, I probably didn't really yeah, mean they that. They might have been brought up, they might have been brought up in a household where their dad said, if you look me in the eye, I'm just going to punch you in the eye. You know? yeah, like, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no I think know. it's more, it's just more when it's, it's like adults who should know better. That's my kind of thing, you know? Yes. Because when yeah, I think, Whenever you go, hello, mate, and they go, oh, you know, it's there. They're capable of doing it. They've just bought into this modern thing of just going through life a bit of a wet jellyfish, having no kind of, you know, no, come on, you leave Don't that house, say, just wave to your neighbour. But in England now, it's almost, um, unless it's like the person right next to you who you see every day, so you have to speak to them. You just don't get to know your neighbours. Some of the, it's, it, it's not everybody. It's not everybody. But there's a good proportion that will just get out the car and scurry to the front door. And you, it's like 
dude, I've lived across the road from you for 10 years now, and you will do everything to avoid just saying, all right, mate. Yeah, I wonder right. if it's, um, I wonder if that's, um, you know, the, the massive rise of big cities and inner city living and everyone's so busy. I wonder, I wonder what it is. I wonder what it is. And I think, um, our self-esteem has been purposely destroyed a lot because if you destroy someone's internal happiness and, and peace, well, what do they do? Well, they go out and try and buy stuff to make themselves happy, don't they? And it plays into this consumer game. Um, it also plays into the, the fact that if people are not talking and with, there's no social cohesion, well, there's no rise against the machine, is there? You know, it, you're just locked into your little bubble house, playing on your, entertaining on your bubble games and com communicating in your bubble phone. There's no, hang on, guys, let's get together and let's discuss 5G. You know, this is our children's future. Let's, you know, this kind of, this kind of thing. So, Marty, listen, thank you ever so much for your time. Wonder, a, a, a wonderful, wonderful and genuine man. I re um, really appreciate that you've, you've spent the time to talk on the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Uh, Thanks, where can people? Absolute, absolute pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Thank you. <laughs> where can people find you, um, social media wise, or is LinkedIn best? Uh, just um, my website is martinwilson.com. My uh, my mum's so proud that uh, the only website I couldn't get Marty Wilson, but martinwilson.com is my website. <laughs> and uh, and on all all the major social medias, I'm just M Wilson speaks. You say like Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, or something. Just uh, made it easier for everyone to be the same. M Wilson speaks on all of them. If you can just send me a little message with all your links, and I'll put them below below the video. Funny little anecdote there. When I started writing, I thought, right, I want a dot com. You know, I don't want any of this dot co dot uk rubbish. Oh, I want a oh, sorry, yeah, I want oh, I want a dot com address, and uh, so. I look. I did one of the search engine things, you know, the the, the providers, and and com was taken. So I was gutted. And then, for reasons I can't even remember why, a year later, I just thought I'd I just I just check maybe that person changed their mind, and they had, and it was available. Oh, and I have it, and I did the same for my son. I bought him the dot his name dot com. Um, probably an ego thing isn't it but you know so yeah so i'll put your links below um the video uh, if you just want to stay on the line marty i'll do my official goodbye to our to our people at home which basically means click off the record button um so big love and massive respect to everybody at home please take care of yourselves we'll see you next time thank you Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username, Chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris.Thrall. Thank you. Sports. 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.